The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. We could turn up the house lights just a little bit. I like to see people. It's a little dark in here because it's dark outside. Um, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Again, for those of you who are new to celebrating Advent, let me catch you up to speed really quick. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is the translation of the Greek word Perusia which is a word in the New Testament that is commonly used to refer to the second coming of Christ. So to put it as simply as possible, Advent means arrival. For Christians, the season of Advent anticipates the arrival of Christ from three different perspectives. This is what Bernard of Clairvoy said in the 11th century. He said this, We as Christians celebrate the Advent by waiting the coming of Christ or in, and looking back in the flesh in Bethlehem, in our hearts daily, and in glory at the end of time. See, this season offers us the opportunity to share in the ancient 
longing for the coming of the Messiah and to be alert for his second coming. Now, we don't really know when Advent started. The earliest records we have are from the early 5th century. So suffice it to say that the Christian church has been practicing this season as a worshiping community for at least 15 and a half centuries. And it could go all the way back to the early church and the apostles. Think about that. That is a long time. That is a long tradition. And it's important for us, um, especially because of how young most of our church is here at Sacred City, it's important for us to be rooted to something historical, right? We aren't making anything new up today. We are participating in a form and a season of worship that has been passed down from generation to generation for at least 15 centuries. Now, I know some of you have a pushback to that concept itself. In fact, I did as well. I was raised in a church and a church kind of tradition that made fun of tradition. Anything, was, anything traditional was mocked as somehow unbiblical. But until I was reading my Bible and I was reading in um, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, where the, Paul the Apostle says this to the Thessalonians. So then, brothers and sisters... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Do you hear that? Paul said, keep the traditions going. Some of these traditions I've shared with you in writing. Those are in Scripture. Some traditions I just told you about when I was visiting among you. So you're going to have to be in the church to experience those traditions. Keep those things going too. The ones I wrote about, the ones I said. Keep those traditions going. See, th those might not be word for word spelled out in the Bible. Here's how you celebrate Advent. But they've been passed down to us through tradition. And those are good things that we shouldn't, quote, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? We should reject traditionalism and keep the traditions that God gives us. Right? Or, or, and the church is passed down to us. So, the season of Advent begins today, four Sundays before Christmas. Now, what is Advent? Now, many here's kind of a strange thing. Many people think they're celebrating Advent when they aren't. Many churches even advertise Advent services or Advent sermon series for the month of December, but most of them miss it. They get it wrong. Most of them, and you could maybe testify this by your own experience, Advent or Christmas season, all it is is four services leading up to Christmas that just celebrate Christmas. It's like four Christmas services. And then Christmas Eve is another Christmas service. Advent isn't just about Christmas. Advent isn't just about the nativity scene. It's not a season that is meant to get you into a holiday spirit. It's not a season that's meant to fill you with holiday cheer. It's not a season meant to loosen up your strings on your pocketbook a little bit. It's not meant to be sentimental at all. I still want more lights in the house if I can get them. I can't see people's faces. How am I going to know if they're convicted or not? Come on. <laughs> What's going on? Limiting me up here. 
right? Advent is an apocalyptic season. Now, when we hear the word apocalypse, what do we think of? I think most of us probably think of the end of the world. We think of movies like Deep Impact, Mad Max, or Cormac McCarthy's The Road. But the word apocalypse simply means revelation. I'm assuming we're working on the lights. We're just having a hard time figuring it out. They don't work. Thank you for telling me or I would just keep on saying it. (laughs) Appreciate that. Okay, that's good. I can preach in the dark. That's fine. Right? But this word apocalypse simply means revelation. That's the word in Revelation chapter 1-1. That's where we get the title from the book of Revelation that John has this apocalypse. He has this revelation. So an apocalypse is actually an uncovering, a revelation of something that was hidden, something that was not known before. But if you've read our introduction to the book that we've may have out there. I don't know if we've still got any of those left. You also know that apocalyptic is a type of literature, which is a very specific genre of literature that is almost always concerned with the end of the world. So most of the time, apocalyptic literature is a revelation from God of what will happen at the end of the world as we know it. Now, that's some of what's going on here in the book of Revelation. God is giving John a revelation, an apocalypse of the ultimate defeat or the ultimate battle between good and evil. Now, I think many of us understand kind of what's going on in Revelation. We at least have a loose grip on what's going on in the book of Revelation. Clearly, this is an apocalypse. But how is Advent an apocalypse? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. Advent is different from Christmas. Advent is the time before coming, before Jesus was born. It's about waiting. Christmas isn't about waiting. Christmas is about receiving, right? It's about longing. Christmas is about longings fulfilled. See, Advent is about being watchful. Christmas is about the, the arrival. Think of the context, the biblical context, the cultural context, right before the birth of Jesus. See, if you're familiar with your Bible, every effort of God's people to be faithful to God for thousands of years was an abject failure. Read the Old Testament. It's a long story, full of mostly failure. You are not going to find a hero in the Old Testament who has not been tainted, maligned by the writing down of his own moral failures, his own moral shortcomings. You can somehow talk about Samson, but you can't talk about Samson with all of, without all of his failures. You can talk about David without talking, you can't talk about David without talking about all of David's failures, which were many. Every man in the Old Testament, you, his failures are recorded. See, many of the men and the women in the Old Testament, they tried desperately, but they failed to be faithful 
to God. And because of their failure, their disobedience to God, they were cursed. They were conquered by other nations. Their temple was destroyed. Their people were carried off to other kingdoms. And then here's what happened. God stopped speaking to them because of their rebellion. There was 400 years between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was 400 years where God did not send them a prophet. God basically said, have it your way. You don't want to listen to me. You don't want to obey me. Have it your way. Let's see how that works out for you. During this time, the Jewish people turned the worship of God, which had always been a response to the sovereign grace of God, they turned it into a long set of rules to follow in order to earn God's blessing. The grace of God was forgotten. The nearness of God was but a distant memory. The people wondered, will God ever come near to us again like he did in the temple? You remember when his glory filled the Holy of Holies and you could literally see the presence of God. Everybody knew God is here and God is among us. Will he ever do that again or we have completely screwed up the story? It is only in recognizing that this is the context. This is what Advent felt like. This is what the darkness of the first Advent season felt like that we can truly appreciate what happened when Jesus arrived on Christmas morning. Now here's the key to understanding Advent. In the midst of this darkness, there's looks like there's no hope. An angel, a messenger from God shows up and gives Mary, look, a revelation. Gives Mary an apocalypse. The angel tells her that God will give her a child supernaturally. That she's a virgin, but the Holy Spirit will conceive in her womb. And quote, this is what he says from Luke chapter 1. Your son, he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Now that is an amazing revelation. But here's the key, again, to Advent. Mary gets this revelation, and everything around her is still pitch black. It's still ice cold. Nothing about her external situation, or the situation of the world at large, or really of the biblical context, has changed at all. Actually, if you study the story, her problems have, have actually got a little bit worse. Now she's pregnant, and her, her fiancé, Joseph, knows he didn't do it. And so now he's threatening to divorce her because he thinks she's a promiscuous woman, and the rest of society thinks the same thing. So actually this revelation has actually made things a little worse for her, practically. Now listen, the only thing that changed for her was now she's expecting See, that's the word we use, right? When a woman is pregnant, she's expecting. That is the key to Advent. In the midst of a world that seems out of control, 
in the midst of a darkness that threatens to absorb your soul entirely, there's an apocalypse, a revelation that reveals to us the reality that all of us, every single Christian is like Mary here. Advent is about expecting Jesus when all else seems hopeless. For Mary, it was waiting for his birth. For us, it's waiting for his second coming. For Mary, even though everything around her was difficult, the knowledge that she would have a son, a very special son at that, would have been motivation for her to persevere. It would have got her out of bed in the morning. It would have been a source of indelible joy to her, even when it seemed that Joseph might divorce her. I don't know what's going to happen with my marriage, but I can trust God that Jesus is on his way. I can expect the Christ, the Messiah, is on his way. She was expecting Jesus, and that would be enough to get her through. The same is true for us. Advent is a time where we can take an honest look at the darkness around us. And even the darkness in us without despair. Because we have the same revelation that Mary had. Jesus is coming. So I have nothing against looking back at the birth of Christ. Let's do that. But let us not forget Advent is also about looking forward. The season of Advent is just as much about the second coming of Christ as it is about his first coming. That's why we are continuing our study in the book of Revelation through this Advent season. It's perfect timing for us. So we're going to jump in to a Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to pray. We're going to get going. You can leave that long intro on the website. That's fine. Just because I'm praying right now doesn't mean that was something else. That was kind of part of my sermon-ish. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for speaking into the darkness. We thank you not just for speaking into it like you did in creation. You spoke into the darkness and light burst forth. But in the advent, you crawled into creation. You climbed into the darkness. And we thank you for doing that. And in our text today, we see why you did that. And I pray that you would think through my mind and you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would use all of me and hide the sinful parts of me behind this pulpit and behind your word this morning. Speak through your servant this morning and let your people hear everything that you'd want them to hear from Revelation chapter 5. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, open up your Bibles, Revelation chapter 5. Oh boy. So, if you missed the sermon from last week because you were scared of the rain, um, John has been given a revelation from God. He sees a door in heaven. And Jesus says to him in this vision, come up here. It's a fantastic vision. You can Hopefully you can watch it on our, online if you missed it. And when this happened, John is taken into the very heart of the universe, into heaven itself. And John sees what makes the world go around. John sees the reason everything exists. John sees the meaning of life. God sitting on his throne with 24 elders around the throne on their smaller thrones. 
These elders represented all of redeemed humanity. Then he sees four crazy-looking spiritual creatures. These are some kind of spiritual animals, and they continually worship God. And every time they offer up their worship to God, the 24 elders sing and bow down and cast their crowns before God. Why are they doing this? Because they have found the meaning of life. They found the one their soul was made for. They have found the one who is eternally glorious. The one who you would never get tired of looking at. Listen, the reason pornography is so damaging and so addicting is because our eyes can never get enough. That's why when you start clicking, it's very hard to stop clicking. You want to see more and more and more and more. Now, why is that? Because our eyes were made to behold true glory, to see God himself, and only God has the glory necessary to fulfill our eyes, hunger for that glory. So over and over and over, all of the spiritual world and all of the physical world say, holy, holy, holy. What is that? You are not like us. We are broken. We are finite. We are minuscule. We are weak. We are tepid. We are moderate. We are wishy-washy. You are not. You are not. You are not. You are everything. You are all things. You are what we long for. Holy, holy, holy. And then they cry, worthy. That's where we get worship from. Worship is ascribing worth, finding something valuable. He says, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed, and they were created. So the main point of chapter 4 was that God is the uncreated creator of all things spiritual and physical, and therefore, by the rights of being the creator, he is worthy of all worship from all of his creatures, all the time. Our worship glorifies God, and God's glory satisfies our desires. And when we worship, when we do what we were created to do, we get more joy than we could ever imagine. That's where our ultimate happiness is found. That's what we saw last week. And now, in chapter 5, this vision is just continuing. And something quite amazing happens that we're going to see this morning. Something that has everything to do with Advent. Let's take a look at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So as John's seeing this vision, he sees God on his throne, his vision narrows, and he looks, and now he looks to God's right hand. And he's like, oh, wait, God's, God's holding something. There's something in his hand. 
What is it? Oh, it's a scroll. It's the, 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 the Greek word is biblia. It's, it's a book. And there's seven seals on that book. Now, when you think of a seal, think of, if you've ever watched the old movies, right? You take a wax seal and you place it on it. You put your signet ring on it, right? And it, that marks the, uh, who it was from, that it's an official thing, right? This, this book or scroll has seven of those seals on it. Now, and it's got writing on the front and writing on the back, right? Now, what is this? In the first century Roman world, this was a common description of a will. Okay, th- listen to this. There's, here's four pieces to an ancient uh, Roman will. One, the contents of such a will was, summar- was something that was summarized on the back. So you would have the will on the inside, and then on the back, you would just have the summary of the highlights of the will, okay? The short story. Secondly, a will had to be witnessed and sealed by seven different witnesses, okay? So you'd have seven witnesses come, you'd write your will, and they would put their seal upon it, and that's an official legal document that could be um, held up in court, okay? Third, only the death of the uh, tester could uh, a will be unsealed, right? The person who was designated uh, as the person that could open the seal... Upon his, upon his, upon, oh my goodness, I can't speak this morning. Upon the death of the one who wrote the will, it could be opened, right? There we go. That's, that's what I was trying to say. Lastly, a trustworthy executor would then put the will into legal effect, right? So there was an executor of the will. After the person dies, the will becomes valid. He would make sure it actually happened, Okay. So that's what's, going, that's what's going on. We see all of those things kind of play out in what John describes for us in this vision. So here it is. In this scene, we have God holding a will or testament of some sort. Now, you know what a will is, right? A will is a legal document meant to distribute your property as you see fit upon your death. Obviously, God doesn't have a will per se because he's never going to die. But he does have a covenant promise. And that's what New Testament scholar G.K. Beale says this document it is. He He says this, the book or the scroll should be considered a covenantal promise of inheritance. Now, that's kind of legal jargon, legal language. We're in here this morning on Advent Sunday, and we're like, what does that have to do with me? Well, do you remember what the covenant promise was? God, it can go, you can take it all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they were cursed because of their rebellion from God. God cursed them, God judged them, but at the same time, he gave a promise to them. It's almost hidden. We heard it, we heard it hinted at in one of the songs we sang this morning. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Many of us were like, what is that? That goes back to Genesis chapter 3. 
where when Adam and Eve sinned, God promised judgment upon the one who tempted them, Satan. One day, one of your offspring, Adam and Eve, will kill the serpent, will crush the head of the snake. He told, then this covenant promise gets played out over, we see it with Noah, we see it with Abram, we see it with David. He tells Abram that he would be the father of many nations. He tells David that his kingdom would never end. So here's the core of the covenantal promises we see in the Old Testament. One, Satan will be defeated. Two, God will save his people himself. Three, God's people from every nation will have a new restored relationship with him. Four, this diverse people group from many nations will inherit a new land, a promised land, a renewed heaven and a restored earth where God will set up his kingdom forever. And on this earth, this new heavens and new earth, all evil will be judged. All evil will be eradicated from this earth. Okay? So, that is the covenant promise that, that was given to Adam and given to Adam's posterity. Okay? Now, here's, the, here's what, what ha- look, in our, look in our text this morning. Look what happens when he sees this. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now we know who can open a will. Only only the person that's in charge of the, the estate, right? Only the person that meets the requirements, right? That's the only person who can open the will. And I love this. This is a challenge that goes out to all heaven and all earth and those under the earth. Who is worthy to open the inheritance? Who is worthy to unlock the seal and open up the world that we all long for, right? Now, isn't this what every politician plays off of? I'm going to be the one to unlock nirvana for you. I'm I'm going to be the one that's going to morally rectify our society. I'm going to be the one that brings justice to the oppressed. I'm going to be the one that finally does something right in Washington. That's what they all claim. Why? They're playing off our desire for a renewed heaven and a new earth. We want peace on earth, goodwill to man. That's what we want. Here's the problem in heaven. The problem in heaven is everything you want is right here in my right hand. Come get it. Well, how is that a problem? You don't understand the problem? You don't understand the Bible. The problem is it's in God's hand. And holy, holy, holy is that God. And the only one who can open it is somebody who has the moral aptitude to do that. Who has the moral purity. Who has never sinned. I love this part. It's a challenge to the whole world. Everything you want's right here. Anybody worthy. Come get it. And what happens to John? 
Look at this. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No one has the ability. No one has been faithful to God's covenant. No one has obeyed him perfectly. No one has the holiness or the glory in and of themselves. It's like walking up to the sun and taking something off the face of the sun. No human being could do it. No one can approach God here. Now, this is like, if you, if, this is like the, the great problem that's in the Bible. It's depicted in many different fairy tales and different stories. We have it of uh, the Arthurian legend of the sword and the stone. Do you remember that? Remember the sword and the stone, which is actually a sword in an anvil on a stone. And it was only what? The true king can pull the sword from the stone. And here's the thing. Every dude in the kingdom walked up going, please let it be me. Right? And here's the thing. This is what's going on in heaven right now. Think about it. Every man on earth, every man that ever existed, every politician, every humanitarian, every good woman, every person that's had a significant life walks up to the sword, grabs a hold of it, yanks it, and it doesn't come out. And all of creation weeps. What does this mean for our future? We have no hope. No one can open the scroll. No one can make happen what we want to make happen. It seems that our soul was made for perfection, was made for glory, and yet we're never going to get there. It's just out of our reach. The world remains broken. The darkness still suffocates. Just like all the Old Testament characters, no one is holy enough. No one is faithful enough. No one is pure enough. And you know what John does? He loses it. He wails in despair. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, or I'm sorry, verse 4, and I began to weep loudly. Look at this. We live in a culture that loves outrage. And I don't care if you're on the right or you're on the left or you're in the middle looking at them both and going, you're all crazy. We why are we freaking the freak out over everything? You want to know why we're freaking the freak out over everything? Because we want heaven on earth and no one can give it to us. My guy, he's in the office. No, my guy's not in the office, but my guy, he's in the office. He's going to give it to me. Failure. He doesn't give it to me. Four years, eight years, I leave depressed. He leaves. He didn't change the world like he promised to change the world. When this group gets a hold of the House, this group gets a hold of the Senate, finally we're going to have some change in this country. And what happens? Not the change we're looking for. Not the future we expected. 
And that makes us wail. That makes us weep. That makes us gnash our teeth. That makes us get depressed. Many of us just push away from the whole thing and say, it's, I'm not even going to worry about it anymore. We despair. Times that, times eternity. And that's what John, that's what John is experiencing right now. The whole broken, unjust world is hell in a handbasket and nobody can fix it. But hold on, John. Hold on. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, oh God. Hmm. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now, if you don't know, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are two Old Testament monikers for Jesus from Genesis 49.9 and Isaiah 11.1. Excuse me. And both of them are prophecies written thousands of years before concerning the Messiah who would come and conquer all of God's enemies and set up his eternal kingdom. And the elder here, one of the elders that's worshiping in the throne room of God, says to John, John, yeah, 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 it's real bad, but stop your crying because the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David is here and he has conquered, he is worthy to open the seals. All of the promises God made were to humans. And a human has to be the one to open the scroll. But the only one worthy to stand up in the presence of God and to open the scroll is Jesus, the Son of God, who, quote, has conquered. Now here is the great, great surprise. How did the lion conquer? How did the royal king from the line of David establish his kingdom and conquer his enemies? Was it through the sword? Yes, it was. But it wasn't through wielding the sword. It was through being pierced by it. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Jesus is the lion who conquers and he was the lamb who was slain. Do you see the beauty of this image here? The contrasting nature of a conquering lion and a lamb that's being conquered. Jesus is both. Jesus standing as if he had been slain. 
That means he bears on his body the marks of his crucifixion. His resurrected, glorified body shows us his wounds. Now, what's going on with the horns and all that stuff? The horns were a sign of power. Again, it's apocalyptic literature. It's a sign of power. The eyes were a sign of being able to see everything through the Holy Spirit. The number seven, again, just means perfection. So it means that literally Jesus has all power and Jesus can see all things and his reign rules through all the earth. Verse seven. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is it right here. Oh my goodness, I struggle to find words to describe what's happening here. But all I can say is every hope you have, every single hope that you have is secured by this scene right here. The lamb who was slain and who lives again pulls the sword from the stone. He walks up to the heart of the universe, to God himself, and says, I'll take it. Hmm. I'm doing a good job of staying controlled right now. <laughs> Give me some time. Give me some time. Listen, most of us, if you're like me, you feel most of the time like John did moments before in verse 4. Who can fix our world? Who can right the ship? Who can make things right? Who can heal my soul? Who can meet my needs? Who can satisfy my desires? Who can break the power of this addiction? The answer is the one who can open the scroll. The answer is Jesus, the lion and the lamb. He alone can do it. That's the revelation. That's the apocalypse. That we are meant to live every single moment of our lives expecting him to do that in us at any moment. Any desire we have can be filled at any moment by him. He's opened the scroll. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Last week we saw in chapter 4 that God the Father was worthy of our worship because he is our sovereign creator. He gave us our mind. He gave us our soul. He gave us our heart. He gave us our strength. And therefore, he is worthy of us giving all of that back to him every day in a life of worship. And this week in chapter 5, we see another reason God is worthy of all of our worship. He gave us Jesus. And Jesus gave us his blood. Look what they say, verse 9. And they sang a new song. Listen, chapter 4 is all about kind of general revelation. 
Anybody can maybe listen to my sermon last week and kind of go, oh, that's cool. God, the uncreated creator, I kind of want to worship him and find my meaning in him. That's general revelation. Here's Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't just teach general revelation. God is the creator. Do what you want. Worship what you want. It also has particular revelation. And the particular revelation is God became a man and Jesus Christ. And now everything in the universe revolves around the question, what will you do with the man? See, don't clap yet. See, what's going on? The first Chapter 4 is all about God. Great. God. We all love God. Even atheists might throw up, yeah, there might be a God. God, God, God. Cool. God. Chapter 5 is what do you do with the lamb? See, here's the reality. God exists, but God sent a lamb. Now, what are you going to do with him? Let me get into this this morning. Verse 8. And they sang a new song. It's an Advent song saying, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why are you worthy, Jesus? Why is Jesus worthy and other things aren't or other people aren't? Why is this? Why can this guy walk up to the throne and take it? This is why. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Oh, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, why specifically is Jesus Jesus worthy of our worship? Listen, there are many people in our world who look at Jesus and they go, man, he, what a nice guy. What a champion of all the values of the left. Oh, look how he treated the poor. Look how he treated the marginalized. Look how he treated, look at, you know, Jesus in this immigration debris. Oh, look at, look at Jesus. What a great guy. And then the right, those on the right say, look, look at Jesus, the great champion of the right. Moral values, family values, justice, all. Oh. Many people look at Jesus as a nice guy, a great example, a moral exemplar. This is how you should live your life. He taught some good things, and like other religious men, right? We should emulate him. We should appropriate his values. But then they treat Jesus just like a philosopher, just like the Dalai Lama, just like Buddha, just like Muhammad. They even say many of to- many times, it doesn't matter what God you worship. It doesn't matter what you call God. As long as you are a good person, all religions lead the same way. Listen, I'm going to be just not like I normally am. I'm going to be very straightforward this morning. If you have a mild appropriate, politically correct response to Jesus, you either don't know him or you have no intellectual integrity at all. Look at verse, you see verse 9 and 10. I want you to zoom in on one thing. By your blood, 
you ransomed people for God. Here's the revelation we get of Jesus this morning. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he ransomed people for God from every people group with his blood. That's an important metaphor that many people just skip over. To ransom someone is literally, it was a, it's to buy someone out of slavery or out of bondage. It's to pay a price for someone to get them out of slavery. We too often just skip over this and don't let it play out in our mind's imagination. We need to ask ourselves, Jesus ransomed people from every day. Well, what, what did he ransom us from? What did he ransom these people from? Why did Jesus have to give his blood as a ransom for people? Now, when you read the New Testament, or you spend much time in the toddler room, or you ever read any comments on any post on the internet, you know that it should be, it should be very clear to you that human beings are born into sin. We're born enslaved to sin, to ourself, to the world, to the flesh, to the devil. We enter the world hostile to God with wills that would rather have our way than his. We're born treasonous little beings. And because of that, we need to be ransomed out of it. We need to be bought out of our slavery to sin. And here's the idea. When Jesus went to the cross to shed his blood, his blood paid the debt we owed to God. Jesus walked into the, t into the throne room and picked up the tab for God's elect and paid the exact amount that every single person who will ever believe in Jesus Christ owed to God. Now, many of you right now go, I don't think I owe anything to God. Well, that's silly. Right? It's just silly. Right? You didn't create yourself. You owe your parents honor. Am I correct? They raised you, they paid for you, they supported you for a long time, and you gave them nothing but problems. Now, if you owe them something, multiply that times infinity, and that's what you owe God, minimally. But also, I want you to think about this concept of sin. When someone sins against you, there's a debt. I tell you, or you want to meet with me? All right, cool, let's meet such and such place at 12 o'clock. I get there. You don't show up, you spaced it. You forgot. You didn't have the maturity to put that thing in your phone or set the alarm or maybe whatever, anything. You, guess what? That's on me, right? Now, I, oh man, okay, I've got an hour. Thankfully, I brought a book, so I'm just gonna use it anyways and I'm gonna read. But when we meet the next time, it's gonna be awkward because you don't know what I'm gonna do. Are they gonna, is he gonna forgive me? Is he gonna make fun of me? I will make fun of you a little bit first but then I will, listen, this is what I'll do. I'll, I forgive you, brother. It's understand. I'm, I've missed, I missed, you know, one or two meetings in my life too. You know? <laughs> Second time you do it, we're, we're in trouble. No, listen, but here's the deal. What do I do when I forgive you? I absorb the cost. You wasted an hour of my day. You took that from me, right? Now, honestly, an hour of my day, that's not a, that expensive. But the price goes up regarding, depending on who you sin against. Right? You want to meet with Elon Musk for an hour, 
and you, he shows up and you don't show up, that's probably like 10 grand or something. You owe him like 10 grand for wasting an hour of his life. You get that? Now, this is, this how, this is how sin, sin is always a debt, and to forgive it, somebody actually has to pay the debt. They have to absorb the cost. How it works all the time. Now, it gets a little funky when you talk about things without monetary value. Like when you, when you, when you break covenant with your spouse. You've sinned against them. There's a debt there, but how do you repay that? There's no monetary value to that. Well, here's the reality. That's horizontal relationships. The same holds true with a vertical relationship with God, except it's multiplied. The debt is multiplied times infinity. So when God has given us everything we could, he gives us our breath, he gives us our intellect, he gives us our mind, our heart, he gives us everything, and we choose to use those things in ways that don't honor him, it's a sin against him. When he says, here, I give you breath, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And we go, not today. That's a sin against God. That's, an, that's, that's treason against God. Now, we just shrug our shoulders and go, it wasn't that big of a deal. Because we don't understand who we've sinned against. Right? There's an infinite debt now. We have this debt that we can't pay. It's just like if you get in a car accident and you accidentally get in a car accident and you accidentally kill someone. Right? What happens? You, your accident creates a debt and you don't have the ability even your insurance doesn't have the ability to pay your debt because you took something from that family that's more valuable than anything that you have, right? That's what sinning against God has done. We've sinned against him. We've marred his glory. We owe a debt, and now all of us are incapable of paying that debt back. We're incapable of paying it back for one reason, because we keep sinning, right? Right? As soon as I try to pay off one debt, dang it, I just did it again. So I'm constantly, if you understand God and you understand your own human nature, we're actually, the, every second we live, we're going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into debt with God. Always. Because we owe him everything and we barely give him anything. Right? So the debt we owe to God surpasses our whole net worth. So what does it require? That's easy. Scripture really pointed and clear. Sin, debt, is paid through your debt. God always gets what he's owed. And so every sinner will die. And their death is a payment for their sins. Our crimes against God are capital offenses. Now here's the deal. Many people, they, 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 they lump Christianity into this group of religions and they go, oh yeah, but God's love. He's love, so he just says, no big deal. I got you. It's all right. I understand. You tried. You were busy. You're under pressure at work. I get it. I understand. You can't forgive. No human can forgive sins that way. The only way to forgive a sin is to absorb the debt, to pay the debt itself. If you go, oh, don't worry, man, I know you were an hour late, or don't worry, man, I know you blew off the meeting, and then the next time you see him, you go, hey, 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 slacker. What's up, dude? What are you doing? You're, you're getting payment from him. See, you're, you're, you're twisting the knife just a little bit. What's up, part-time? How's it going? Oh, did you get enough sleep last night? Oh, okay, you're twisting the knife. See, you're extracting payment. You're, okay, 
See, you wasted a day, a t- an hour of my life, so I'm going to take a pound of flesh. See, this is why many of you fail to forgive in your marriage. Because you're not actually willing to absorb the cost and go, yep, that hurt. I'm broken over that, but I'm going to put it on Jesus and I'm not going to take it from you. So we constantly bring it back up, constantly remind them, we constantly punish them without forgiving. So we can't do, we can't forgive without paying the debt in our human relationships. Neither can God do it eternally. Now, this is why God is holy, holy, holy. He is just. That's good for us because we want him to rid the world of evil, right? But then we realize, oh, no, there's a problem with ridding the world of evil. Evil runs right through every human heart, including mine. So if God is going to eradicate the world of evil, I'm getting eradicated. There's a big problem here, right? Now listen, God can't just go, oh, no big deal, and ignore our sins. That would leave evil on the earth. That would leave evil in our hearts. That would be unjust, just like a judge. You go before a judge, and you stand there, and he goes, oh, no big deal. Your crime's, the victims are going to look and go, that's unjust. It's an unjust system. You can't make the world right through an unjust system. It's impossible. God, because he's holy, must judge them. Listen, he must make things right by rectifying them. Not overlooking, not bypassing, making them right. Now, here's how he did that. Because Jesus was a man, Jesus can stand in the gap before mankind. He can be our head. Just like the president is our representative of our country, no matter what you think of him, he makes decisions for you on your behalf, right? Jesus can be our representative. He can go before God and make decisions for us on behalf of us, right? He can take our place before the judge, before the throne of the judge of all the earth. Now listen, because Jesus was a sinless man, he doesn't have a personal debt to God. He doesn't have a moral debt to God. He can stand before God without any threat of judgment. He can walk up to the throne and take the scroll out of God's hand because Jesus never sinned once. But because Jesus is also God, the very Son of God. Listen, Jesus has the net worth to pay the price for all our sins. The blood of Jesus was more costly than all the riches of the world combined. Now, this is the good, this is the good news. This is the good news. This is the gospel this morning. Listen, there was absolutely no way for us to be set free from the consequences of our sins. Jesus had to die for us to be saved. He's the only one moral purity. He's the only one that, that, that has the, the, the money in the bank, the glory to do it because he's, he's man and he's God. 
That means every other religion might have strands of truth in them, but they don't offer salvation. No one, no one else has the Son of God making payment for our sins. And then this, let me think, if you think that you treat Jesus just like every other world religion, it makes a mockery of Christianity. Here's what it's like. You're standing on a street corner one day, you and your buddy, and your buddy looks at you and goes, you know how much I love you? And you say, how much do you love me? This much. And he jumps in front of a bus. What? You, you show your love for me by dying in a stupid way? What the heck? You're, you, he should have been on his meds. This, there's something wrong with this guy. It's mental illness. If there was any other way to get us right with God, then Jesus' death is mental illness. Why would the Son of God die for us if there was another way to do it? Oh, here it is. It's the step to enlightenment. Oh, here it is. Just be a good, nice person. It makes the death of Jesus a mockery. Instead, let's change the, the story just a little bit. I'm walking along my way. I don't understand what's going on. I got my earbuds in and I'm tweeting and I'm doing all this stuff on my phone and I'm walking in front of a bus and my friend jumps in front of me and knocks me out of the way and he dies. Then his death has meaning. See, that's what happens in the cross. The wrath of God was bearing down on us because of our many sins, but Jesus Christ stepped in front of the coming bus. He stepped in front of the coming wrath of God and he paid our price for our sins once and for all. And when God looks at us, he says, paid in full. That's the good news. Jesus was slain for us. Don't act like he's one way to God. That makes a mockery of who he says he was and what he did. Nobody, and here's the reality. If you realize, this is what I prayed that God would give us this morning, that we would feel the weight that John feels when he walks, when he looks into the throne room and he sees, oh, there's the scroll. There's everything we want. Who can open it? And nobody can open it. And then the turn of events, the good news. When the lamb stands up and the lamb goes up and the lamb takes it and the lamb did it and the lamb ransomed. And now everything we hope and everything we want is going to come to pass because the lamb paid the debt. We have to feel both sides of that. Now listen, there's lots of ways I could explain that. One way, I'm just going to do it like this. Last night, I'm watching the Alabama game. Yeah. Right? Star player playing like garbage. Oh, man. Star player playing like garbage, nothing we can do. Oh, man. This other team playing their best game. Oh, man, what's going on? What's going on? And then when it looks like they're, we're without hope, star player gets hurt. Let's bring the backup in. Backup's got something to prove. Backup comes in, two touchdowns, we win the game. J.R. Tolkien called that a eucatastrophe. He invented that word. He said this, when everything looks dark, redemption comes. 
when nobody can pull the sword or the stone and then somebody pulls it out. Nobody can open the scroll and then somebody opens it out. Nobody can lead this team to victory and then somebody leads this team to victory. We have to experience both of it. We have to feel the weight that no one else could save us from our sins. And when we feel the weight that literally we are without hope, without Christ, and when we see Christ and we taste Christ and we receive Christ, it changes everything for us. This is why there is no mild reaction to Jesus. You either hate him, because who does he think he is to be the only way to God? I can't stand Christianity. I can't stand how narrow-minded it is. I can't. You either hate Jesus or you do what everybody else does in the throne room of God at the heart of the universe. Let's read it and then I'm done. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels number, numbering myriads of myriads. That literally means, means millions of millions and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, this is what's going on in heaven right now. This is what's going on in heaven right now. Millions and millions, thousands of thousands, spiritual beings, physical beings that have been redeemed, and they're all doing this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive, oh, I love this, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing that sevenfold. We're following through this theme Seven means perfection. He's just layering it up, layer on top of layer on top of layer. They're singing out and worshiping God. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the only appropriate response for any person who has ever had their sins forgiven. If you don't respond like this to Jesus, I doubt you've experienced the joy of your salvation. I doubt you've experienced the eucatastrophe, how destitute you were and now how glorious your future is going to be because of Christ. This is our response. And I want us to be a church that thinks of this every time we come in. We're reminded of how dark it was before Advent and we're reminded of how bright it is after Advent because of the coming of Christ. How destitute we were in our sins and how glorious our future is because of Christ. That's what I want us to remember. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Listen, if you didn't know that this morning, What it requires of you is to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, what I've often used this illustration that trust or faith is like putting your weight on something. It's like leaning right now. I'm, I'm leaning on this pulpit. If this pulpit wasn't here, I would fall. And the reality of, of the gospel, the reality is I can only put my trust in one thing at a time. And I'm either trusting in Christ or I'm trusting in something else. I'm leaning, I'm putting the weight of my life. I'm worshiping something else. And so my prayer and my call for you this morning is turn your worship to the only one who deserves it. Put your trust in the one who died for your sins, who paid the ransom to bring you back to God.
Put your trust in him this morning. Father, what a glorious scene. We feel the angst. We feel the emptiness. We feel the brokenness. We look at our world and we say, who can make it right? Who can open the seals? Who can bring the kingdom? We also feel the good news. We feel the hope when we look and see Jesus, the lamb standing who was slain. He set us free from our sins. When we trust in him, he will make all things new. So Jesus, would you help us live expecting you this morning, expecting you to show up, expecting your return. And as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to your table, Father, as we come with open hands, realizing we, we don't deserve this. We deserve your wrath and your judgment. And yet, Jesus, you absorbed God's wrath for us and you took our judgment for us. And so we take your body in our hands and we eat it and we take your blood we say, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed by your blood, a cup of grace. And we eat it and we drink it in worship to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.